Hi, I'm Marion Ellis, and this is the Surveyor Hub podcast, the podcast for surveyors who just love what they do. In this podcast, you'll hear from surveyors of all flavours, businesses of all sizes, and also conversations with people working in the business of surveying, supporting the work we do. We'll be chatting about what matters in our work, our career journeys, and learning how surveyors make a social and physical impact every day through their work. Don't forget to rate, review and follow the podcast or pop over to Google and leave us a review. You can also show your support at buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Surveyor Hub. Today I'm chatting to Alison Stone, a chartered surveyor specialising in leasehold enfranchisement. Welcome to the podcast, Alison. Hello, nice to see you. Are you nervous? Uh, Yes, I've not done anything like this before. I love guests who are nervous. (laughs) (laughs) sorry that sounds a bit ominous like I'm going to interrogate you I'm not (laughs) Uh, she goes quiet now and doesn't speak (laughs) I know what do I say well I I just love it because people who haven't done things like this before I just love people who haven't heard your story or the work that you've done and I think it's just a great opportunity to go diving into um, people's lives. So so tell us a bit about, introduce yourself, tell us a bit about your work. Right, I'm a lease extension valuation specialist to so do lease extensions obviously uh, and enfranchisements and any development value around them. I don't do very much else in the odd valuation but I really specialise in this because it's quite a technical area and you really need to stay on top of the changes at the moment with uh, the government doing things. It's a real niche area. Nobody ever understands what you do. A lot of surveyors don't understand what you do when you speak to them. They're like, Oh, so what is it you do? So my uh, my first uh, question is like, how do you spell enfranchisement? Oh. <laughs> how do you spell yeah. it? And how do you how do you promote, pronounce it? I always look at it and think, oh, too many letters in a in a word. Yeah, so how did franchisable? That that one's just like how do you? Spell so how it? did you give us a bit of background? You know, because I want to find out about what this work is like as a surveyor, what it involves day to day. But tell me a bit about how you got into this work in the first place. Well, You'd blame my father for that one because he's been doing it since the 93 Act came out and had been asking me to join him for a while. But I was quite happy as a mortgage advisor, working locally, bringing up my young children. But for various professional and personal reasons, I stopped doing that. Didn't work for six months and was sitting in a cafe in Lee thinking, do I need to go back to work? I might open a cafe deli. I don't know anything about commercial leases. Phoned my dad and said, but what do I need to know about commercial leases? He said, if you're going to do something like that, you want to come back to work, come and work for me. It'll be just as hard, but you'll earn lots more. So we agreed because he was in London and I'm in Essex. I didn't So, so sorry. So you were going to open a cafe? Yes. <laughs> started to ask about leases and then started a journey to, uh, to becoming a surveyor eventually. I don't think I've heard that one before. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a roundabout route. But it was just like, oh, I was looking at leases in the paper, commercial leases. I think you don't really understand them. I need some help here. But I didn't want to work for him before that because I didn't want to work in London. Um, my kids were little. I didn't want to commute. But we brokered a deal where I would do certain hours, certain days, and we made it work. And, yeah, I sort of carried I worked for him for quite a long time. Then I wanted a bit more experience of other areas so that I could get my APC. So I went to work for another company that did other things as well um, and was there a couple of years and then set up on my own. Just before lockdown. How handy. Yeah, so yes. quite a few people do that. <laughs> yeah, yes, I know quite a few of them. They're like, 
So how do we get the timing so out that um, it worked? In, it was all right. It wasn't too much of a problem. Um, I was already used to working from home. And we were quite lucky being in property. We were allowed to get back to work quite quickly. And so let's talk about leaseholds. And I'm going to use the wrong words and everything now, but the whole sort of leasehold enfranchisement. What is it? Because there'll be we get a lot of listeners who are just starting their surveying journey or work in totally different fields. Can you explain what you mean? On a residential flat, mostly, there are some houses that you'll have leasehold instead of freehold. When the lease starts to get a bit short, it loses value, particularly 80 years. There's a thing called marriage value, which is getting very technical. But uh, if you want to sell your property and it's got 85 years now, the purchasers will want it extended or you should be doing it anyway, even if you're not selling. And I value the cost for that lease extension how much it should cost, then negotiate with the other side. I do work for freeholders and SEs, so I come at it from both angles. And the same, the enfranchisement is the whole thing, but we think more of enfranchisement as buying freehold. So getting together with your fellow lessees to buy the building between you. So it's either buying a longer length of time, buying time, I guess, on your your flat or clubbing together to I'm just remembering actually we did this on a flat that I used to live in in London <laughs> she says as she forgets 15 years ago <laughs> where you get together and you take over then the the freehold and it's it's quite a complex area I guess for people to get their head around because when you buy a house you just buy the house the, the freehold the the legal responsibility for isn't you know you buy the the boundaries and everything that's in it when you're buying a flat or something or, or at least old house and there are quite a few actually across the the UK, you're almost like effectively renting the space. Yeah, it's like like a very, very long rent. Um, In the same way that people buy leases of uh, commercial properties, but they tend to be like five, ten years, um, whereas this is just a very long one. But people also these days, well, ground rent is a big thing. Um, We have all the issues where the developers basically took advantage and the- yeah there was there was there was a lot of that in the press wasn't there I was gonna I was gonna ask you um, ask you about that and the leases tend to be from, from memory now you know 125 years or 999 years is the, you know, the longest one I think uh, that you'd get but effectively uh, the longer that you own the property that lease then comes down and when it gets to the 80 85 years that's when it starts to affect the value of the property isn't it and that's why people would then want to extend that lease yes and also this was getting to with the ground rents if you've got a dodgy ground rent you can use the same mechanism to get rid of the ground rent even if so you let's, let's talk about ground rents then what are ground rents oh uh, there are some that gets paid to the freeholder there's a, a lot of whether they deserve it or not but it tends to keep the freeholder interested and involved in the property but um, a lot of them are fairly normal, you know, £60, £100, and they're fine. It's when you get higher ones. Mortgage lenders don't what, like what's it. it actually, what's it actually for? What do they, is it just like they don't a, nothing. an additional don't little rent or tax? Yeah, it's a rent in the same way that, you know, a commercial lease would have purchase price for the lease and a rent. But it's just a, quite a small rent. It's in contract law, you need to have some consideration. And I think that's part of it where it probably came from, because it was, it's always been sort of fairly nominal, really. It's only in more recent times that developers have realised they can actually put something a bit more hefty in. Um, yeah. And this, is, and this is where it has started to go wrong over the past 20 30 years or whatever, is as developers have built new properties, they've added in these ground rents, escalating ground rents. Is that right? 
yes, it's the, yeah, they don't, they tend to start off quite fine because people just look at what they're going to pay now and they go, oh, that's all right. But it's how they escalate, how much they go up by and how quickly it's causing the problem. So rather than paying £100 every year, it's £100, then £200 and £300. It's that uh, until it gets to a point where you're, you know, a number of years in your property, the lease is going down and you've got really expensive ground rents to pay. And on top of that, you know, you've got your ground rent, your lease that you have, and then you've got service charges as well, haven't you, for for flats, you know, for maintenance and, and different things. So anybody, you know, coming outside the industry to buy a flat, you know, would just think, is this not a ripoff? <laughs> you know, here's us working, working around it of, you know, how do we negotiate it? Well, it's obviously been made very complex, but, you know, you just think it's just the law, yeah. the way it's been done, but it's it's a ripoff. So what's the government done? So this all, all came to a head a couple of years ago, didn't it, with just some really extreme ground rents. And the, and the lenders, I think, then decided, actually, we're not, it's not viable. We're not going to lend on some of these. And and I think lenders have a massive impact on properties and whether they're suitable or not, because obviously it's their money that they're they're shelling out at, at the end of the day. Because they're thinking about marketability and can it be sold in the the future. But it all came to a head, and then the government made some changes, didn't they? Yeah, there's been a recent law that came into force at the end of last no, month before now, end of June. So you can't have any new ground rents. Keep the old ones. It doesn't help anybody who's already stuck in it. Some of the developers have agreed to revise those ground rents and that's helped some people, but there are others that are just stuck with it. But you can't have new ground rents, nothing new at all, nothing, not not anything. So if I went to buy a new build flat today, I would have my lease, my service charges, but that's it, there shouldn't be any ground rent no. in there. If it's got a yeah, brand new lease and that goes with any lease extension, um, which is, still is anyway, that sta- if you go the statutory route, there's no ground rent, but you used to be able to do informals where you could um, get a slightly lower premium and agree a ground rent, which if it's low enough, is not a problem to anyone. But it, as you say, it's these uh, escalating ones. Yeah, I guess I guess it's not a problem, but it's just an added complication, isn't it, of just something else that's quite confusing for a, a consumer to get their, you know, a house buyer to get their um, flat buyer to get their head around, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. But for, for those getting lease extensions, it was one way of making it cheaper. Right. And, they, the lessees have lost that option. That is the law of running. So how, so how, sorry, how did it make it cheaper? Uh, because the freeholder would get um, a bit of money every year with the ground rent. Therefore, they wouldn't be looking for quite so much up front. Right, I see. And it's like the pension funds have these ground rents. So I guess from the freeholder's point of view, this is an investment, isn't it? And you just said, you know, they're, they're pensions, funds, different institutions who are then investing buying these and they work out their money as to you know the little bits of ground rent that come in and then when they think the lease will be renewed budget for that work all of that out but yeah you're right I guess that that will then can change yeah yes it has changed yes. They, did they did they not just get rid of leaseholds can they not just get rid of leaseholds or not well, they're looking at common hold but that has its own issues lenders aren't very keen on it because it's new and nobody really knows it um, you've got issues over who will actually look after the building. So it's not straightforward, but it is something that the government are pushing for now. But you know, you'll end up with um, a bit like the condominiums in Australia or America. They're based on the same sort of ownership. I just find it, you can probably tell, I just find it mind-blowing. <laughs> just, I guess a couple of things. How, how complex we make it for people. And, you know, it's okay that, 
going forward, things can be changed, simplified, and it needs government intervention to do that. And they only ever do that when there's a crisis or something that's, you know, that's happened. But also you mentioned people who are actually stuck with these ground rents that are escalating and that then affects how they sell the property because they'd need to do something about that or extend the lease or or whatever you know, sort of make it more marketable in terms of um, terms of price. And effectively, they become, I don't like the term, but they become mortgage prisoners. You know, they're stuck. They can't get a new mortgage, can't sell. Do we know how many of those there are roughly in the UK? I imagine there's quite a lot. I don't know the statistics on that, no. But I do do, you know, I help these people. I, you know, they come to me and they say, oh, they've been offered a new deal from the freeholder because of all this. So they've got something like um, £250 that doubles every 10 years, which soon becomes ridiculous. And then they're offered something else by the freeholder, should they take it. And I could do, I calculate the various options and often it's worth taking it, but then immediately statutorily extending because what the the freeholders offer isn't marketable either, but it then makes it cheaper. Mm. I guess it's sort of weighing up the pros and cons and the deal overall, isn't it? When yeah. when you calculate these then, you know, it's not something ever I ever got involved with when I was doing resi, but when I think about valuing a property for remortgage or for, for sale, you, I, we don't know all of this information. You know, we go out and inspect it for the, the bank or, a, you know, if it's a home buyer with a valuation, and we don't always know all of this information. And back in the day, before we had right move SCT and you know all the the detailed stuff I guess we have now, you would literally you know have a bit of a phone round estate agent, print off a report from your your office, you know find a couple of flats that look similar and you know highlight them and you know whether they're in a range and you'd pop them down. And obviously that's why we got lots of claims in the last recession. But you don't always know everything that's going on, and so I'm just wondering, you know, even with the data that we might have these days. You know, that that's quite significant to know if someone's extended their lease or not, whether they've got high ground rents or not. And that I guess that's sort of quite quite hard then for valuers then to look at how do they value property and, and to get all of that information. Yeah, it's, it can be hard to get that. I, I have to get it for mine because it is what I do. But obviously, mortgage valuers, they have to make some assumptions. I know the mortgage lenders say you can assume this and that, but it's down to the lender. Like a minimum number of years on the lease mm. and that and that kind of thing. Mm. They, they wouldn't even know if the comparables they're using have got sensible ground rents or you can usually find the lease length. But you're right, previously without SCT and stuff like that, uh, access to the land registry online, you wouldn't. But people, aren't, uh, valuers are not going to get the land register extract for every single comp they look at. So that's where you, you know, you look at it and you think, actually, that doesn't fit. Maybe there's something else there. I guess, I mean, you know, you mentioned uh, land registry. So I know that, you know, there's more more data and things out there now. But I guess this is where really having a good conversation with your local agent, getting to know your local patch, local surveyors, you know, hearing about, you know, local conveyances, even getting to hearing about, you know, because obviously it's a, usually a particular block that, that's a challenge. You know, but just being able to to know all of that means that you can give a much better, more accurate valuation, but also be just more more informed. Or I guess, you know, if you don't know, that's a case of, you know, you, you've got to put the brakes on until you do know, you know, because it can make a massive difference. And I guess that's the pressure that 
mortgage valuers are under when they're asked to do the jobs and turn them around quickly. You can only do that if you make assumptions and you've got the right comparables. And hence, I guess, there's a, an element of risk. But I guess with your work, you've got more time. It's talking to different people, being able to gather the information you know, from the from the different parties. So how do you actually calculate it then? Is it like a particular formula? Is it the comparable method? You know, how, how does that work? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the flat value use the comparable method to get that. And that's just one part of it. But yes, we have spreadsheets for the various things we do. And then you have to apply the appropriate rates in the appropriate places. Uh, and it's knowing which rates to use. So what rates would, would they be then? You've got the capitalisation rate on the ground rent. So you've got to choose what rate to use there. And the deferment rate on the reversion, which is pretty much stuck with because of a tribunal decision. Um, and the relativity, which is where you work out the marriage value between the long and the short lease value. It's very simply, very, very simplistic way of putting it. Um, but again, we've had some tribunal decisions that have made said, right, you've got to use these graphs if you don't have long lease and short lease evidence. So if you've got sales of short leases and sales of long leases in the same block, you can work out your own relativity, but if you can't, you have to use particular graphs. Oh, right. So there's, so there's some prescribed um, model, I guess, you, you need to look at if you haven't got the, the information you need. Yeah. And the government are looking at making it more and more prescribed, but the freeholders will fight that quite heavily, I think. Well, it's their investment, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I continue. My, my brain is mind blown <laughs> it is such specialized valuation i think i don't think i'd appreciated how specialized and complex it is and yet as valuers we talk about leases and grand rents and things but getting it to this level is more complex you have so, to like numbers yeah yeah, yeah which like i don't numbers. which is why <laughs> so um so you you said you said you know you started to work with your your dad you uh, got you know got lots of different experience before you then became um, qualified as a surveyor. So do you not need to be an RICS member to do this kind of work then? No, it's not red book. No, you don't actually need any qualifications. I chose to become chartered, but I finally actually did it during lockdown when I had two months of no work uh, and lots of free CPD online. So it's like, oh, okay, let's just see if we can get chartered. But um, yeah, you do, you don't actually need have qualifications obviously lots of experience um it's a very dangerous area to dabble in because you really need to be on top of what's current as it can make depending on the area you work in it can be a lot of money a lot of money for these i find that quite shocking actually that you know so with the with the rics in the red book whatever we think of whatever the rics have ever done for us you know there's always that debate but we do have the standards and the guidance and the the red book which says what we should and shouldn't do but importantly it's independent and you know the banks different lending institutions others they all rely on it and so there's a whole network and system relying on this this framework and RICS tends that and makes sure it's relevant and and up to date and yet effectively you're doing valuations or a version of evaluation but not within that under that banner or that or that protection I guess yeah, it, it's, there's a lot of statute case law instead says this is how it's done. And you've always got the tribunal to fall back on if the other side are not being sensible. So the rules, rules, if you like, that you follow, 
are some prescribed models if you haven't you know haven't got the evidence and everything that you that you need like a, a default if you like then it's you've got really got to be up to date on all the case law then and what the and understand that and the the outcome is there a leasehold body that you're a member of Alec, the Association of Leasehold right. and Investment Practitioners, they started 15 years ago, about to celebrate their 15th anniversary. Oh, wow, it's quite new. Yes, yes. Um, I joined them quite early on. I thought they were a good idea and they promote, they help the government with advice in all this. Um, they've got valuer members, barrister members, solicitor members. Uh, you have to have certain level of work. You know, you can't just join up. You have to be experienced enough to join them and become a member. Um, and they do a lot of conferences and webinars and things to keep you up to date. So there's a central point, I guess, that's letting you know. You know they, yeah, it's yeah, not straight away always because these, you know, they're only several times a year. But if something comes up, they do email out the members, um, not so much on the cases, but more on the government side of things. Right. Um, cases I tend to keep an eye on. LinkedIn, um, funnily enough, the um, barristers tend to post the latest things that they've been into the tribunals, upper, upper tribunals with the more important ones, because obviously the lower level you don't, you know, they're not binding. Yeah, and a, and a lot of um, a lot of those chambers will produce useful guides that get get sent out and unpack, so you can just get the, the relevant bits that you you need. So I guess sort of quite open and open to interpretation, and and like you said, it's sort of not something that you would you would necessarily dabble in. Therefore, you need to have an element of confidence to go into doing that kind of work. So effectively, you have two parties. Do they instruct you individually or as joint parties, and then you work it out? Or is that originally, originally when the 93 Act came out? Apparently, um, it was supposed to be one valuer that just did a valuation, but obviously, soon the uh, the larger landlords decided that um, that wasn't good enough and they would, you know, it to be more in their favour. So we ended up with one on each side. I act for both lessees and freeholders, so it depends on who instructs me. I obviously have to check for conflict of interest, um, but I will act for certain freeholders, I will not act for. But uh, yeah, they instruct you, you do the valuation and then you negotiate with the other side. And so it's sort of, you know, you create your your report, your advice and then a negotiation. What is that like a meeting or a Zoom call or an email back and to and a bit of jiggery poker? It's on the other side. Because <laughs> uh, I'm paperless, I, t- I like to use the emails. Even if I pick up the phone, I tend to back it up with an email because then I've got mm. to keep it in the file. Record. Yeah, um, you know, and you can have quite a long string of uh, of emails depending on how complicated or how hard someone is fighting. And so if they agree, that's fine. If they don't agree, is that when it can then escalate to court or? Yeah, to tribunal. Yeah, you can either side can take it to tribunal but at, normally at any at any point because i'm just imagining these things can go on for years could they oh no there are deadlines yeah you've right. got to make application within six months of the date of the counter notice if not it's what they call a deemed withdrawal and the lessee loses um their process is dropped they have to pay all the fees and then they've got to wait a year before they can serve another notice so um, the solicitors need to be well on top of it as well to make sure the deadlines are well, well on top of it plenty of time not leaving it yeah. to the last um to the last minute do you hear of many sort of claims against valuers or surveyors like you in the not, not the valuers no you do get some against the solicitors for missing deadlines uh, not giving the right advice but i don't know of any valuer that's ever ever been sued 
How do you find, again, I'm just thinking about residential valuers here and we all worry about PI and getting PI insurance to do this kind of work. Is it the same kind of risk then or not? Um, well, my PI covers me to do normal um, valuations, not lending. I don't do lending. Um, I think that would probably send my PI through the roof. It did go up quite a bit this year, but um, it's not bad. It's not too bad. But yeah, I think that's mostly because I don't do the lending. So you mentioned then, you know, negotiating with the the other party. And it sounds like you've been on a on a journey. But you, you started, you know, you said that you started as a mortgage advisor. So that I guess yeah, it was a lot of customer facing work because of services, you know, effectively. So how did you how did you find you know going to that level then of negotiating with another expert? Oh yeah, that a scary journey. Or did it take yeah. a bit of confidence? <laughs> I did. When I was a mortgage advisor, my dad gave me a load of leaflets that, about leasehold reform. And I read them and I thought, no idea what this means. I just didn't understand it. Um, so I understand that if you don't do this work, nobody really understands it. When I started working with him, didn't know what I was doing. So I was. he showed me everything from inspecting. Um, I'd write his reports. I'd do the filing. It would take me ages to do the filing because I would read everything. And see all his negotiations because it was all pen and paper then. And it was like, oh, I because I know. So I just read and read and read. Um, and then I would start to do my own inspections and then gradually start to do my own reports. And then he said, right, now it's time to start negotiating. And I was like, oh, okay. And they'd phone up and I'd be in the office and I'd tell him, I'm not here. I'm not here. Don't, don't, I can't do it by phone. I can't do it by phone. They're going to have to write to me so that I could then spend the time looking at what they'd written and give a measured response. Now I pick up the phone and I'm like, yeah, stop talking rubbish. We both know that's no good. You know, come on, be sensible here. Let's get this sorted. And it is, it's just a journey. I mean, this is 16 years later mm. and it's just experience. And yeah, you, you, you saying that reminded me, well, a couple of things really, just the how much, you know, I did a lot of admin work before I then became, you know, started to became a survey and started that journey. And all of the skills that you learn of just being in an office, talking to people phones, all of that stuff, it really does stand you in good stead. Because the kind of things you don't really learn as, as a surveyor, if you go straight from school to uni to working in an office, you know, you're concentrating on the surveying side, but not necessarily how a business works or how to interact with um, with clients. So anything that anybody does, you know, in those formative years really does make a difference. But you just reminded me of, you know, actually how nervous we can be talking on the phone. And I remember when I used to work in a, well, I've had many, many jobs, Alison, uh, I used to work in a car parts, yeah, mail order car parts company called Demon Tweaks up in uh, North Wales. I knew absolutely bugger all about <laughs> cars, but I was quite confident on the phone and could do do admin. And I remember um, somebody phoning up and just being really horrible, really horrible on the phone and just having this sort of panic, you know, of how do I negotiate with them? How do I sort this out with them? And I remember faking that the I couldn't hear them on the phone line. <laughs> I sort of, sorry, oh, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. And sort of like hung up. And I felt so, so bad. But at that point, I hadn't really been given any training on how to, to use the phone or how to deal with difficult customers. And I, I, I don't think surveyors have a lot of that, actually. You know, we have, might have on paper, you know, the tactics of how to negotiate. But actually talking to someone or even being in the room with someone, it's very different, isn't it? Yeah, I remember sort of watching my and listening to my dad do it on the phone. You pick up, you do, you pick up so much more being in the office. I suppose that's going to change moving forward. People are, you know, working from home. Yeah. So not going to pick up the stuff yeah. you used to. 
Yeah. And, I, and I guess this is where, you know, we have a generation of a bit of a skills gap, if you mm. like, and on how they interact with, with clients. You know, I mean, I know things change and technology can certainly help us, but, you know, so it's, it, it's that confidence, isn't it, of being able to know your stuff, handle what's in front of you and, and manage it or at least buy yourself time so you can breathe. And but it's <laughs> funny that I got, got that flashback. I remember it was that fear of t- talking to someone on the phone. Uh, yes, I think I've done something similar in the past. Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I can't think quickly enough at the moment. Just get myself out of this and, and come back to it later. Oh, 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 sorry, it's bad line, bad line. Oof. Yeah, and then I had. To, you know, it wasn't didn't help because I then had to speak to them later anyway. You know, and they were like, "My line was fine." I'm like, really sorry, really sorry. <laughs> you know, the problem doesn't go away when you cut when you cut someone off. No. Tell me about. You know, I mean, it sounds like it was really nice working with your dad he was obviously very knowledgeable how did you find that and I know there's a lot of surveyors out there actually who work with their parents or, or whatever family businesses yes yeah he was a, a very good but he's still he's still working a bit but he's a very good teacher although he now phones me and says <laughs> um, I've got this case because <laughs> I'm just more on top of it he's only working part-time but yeah he was very good and patient with me I made a big cock up with some comparables on a case that he had to take to tribunal and he really did get berated in the tribunal made a fool of himself worked on my things I mean so yeah he had to take an element of responsibility in as much as he didn't check he assumed that I'd got it right but he didn't didn't have a go at me at all he was really kind about it because it was in sort of fairly early days for me Mm. Um, but no, it was great. You know, he taught me so much. You know, gave me the confidence to to be able to go out on my own and, and deal with it all, deal with people and not to take their rubbish. But some of that's going to be age. You know, I'm in my yeah. now. I don't take rubbish from anyone. You get to a point in your life where you're just like, I ain't putting up with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not having this drama. Just go and give it somewhere else. You know, I'm not interested in it. I'm always, I'm always interested in failure and problems and claims and things like that. And a lot of surveyors really worry about things going wrong. That must have been quite, all right, your dad was handling it, you know, when you, when you made this mistake on comps. I think having that mistake early on in your career can really shape your attitude to the way that you work. And some people are very, okay, this is what I need to do to get it right in a positive way, whereas others can be absolutely terrified. And, you know, instead of getting three comparables, they get 26 and you know they overthink it and, and worry and and I guess with a, a lot of surveyors you know that's where you know particularly on the residential side we talk about caveats in reports you know to, to get you out of a of a hole just in case and you bung everything in to the point where actually it's not a usable document for, <laughs> for your client how did you recover from that because that must have been a, quite a, a tough thing to deal with yeah he just he was he was very good and he showed me what I'd done wrong and I'm just I do check quite thoroughly I am very thorough mm. um, I've worked in a few places now with a few different people and some some of them are definitely not as thorough as they should be but I've, I've often said if I don't do this I'll probably be a private investigator because I go into quite a lot of detail it doesn't mm. all get into the report but I have to be really confident that what's there is is right and that, that, yeah. I, I think I think you're right I think you're right there there's that balance of being anxious of getting it wrong but then trusting your gut instinct to know I have got the evidence 
you know, I have got enough information to make a decision, whether that's, you know, a valuation figure or a tick in the box or to, you know, recommend a report, you know, whatever it's, it's knowing, have I got enough information? Do I feel confident enough to do that? Or is there something else that's worrying me in the background that makes sort of makes me hesitate? And often that's nothing to do with your work. It could be because you're tired. It could be because you're in a busy environment. You're not getting the support that you need. It sort of spirals sometimes into not trusting your your gut instinct, but it sounds like you had quite a lot of support from your your dad. Can I ask you about um, how you train then? So he was sort of very, I guess, sort of self-taught, uh, you know, or rather taught you, you know, what he what he learned. Because it doesn't sound like there's a lot of structure to learning this <laughs> or becoming a, a specialist in um, in this area. Where do people learn? How do they how do they learn? Well, like me, I think everybody again has learned on the job. By working with somebody alongside someone, I get off asked quite a lot of them, sort of, you know, where do you, where can you go and learn more about this? And apart from Alec, who do give webinars and, and talks and stuff, um, but they're, they're just giving out the information. Um, there isn't anywhere that I know of. I'm actually going to start a training course myself. I've got quite a few people interested. We're looking at setting something up so that we can give ongoing support. So it's not just going to be, you know, here's the information, get on with it, because you need a lot more hand-holding because you haven't got someone in the office with you. I've got um, one chap I'm training at the moment. We've been out together a few times and I work through the stuff with him and I'm training him up. So looking at, say, doing these these training courses, it's a bit early days yet. I haven't got anything on uh, on paper. <laughs> I need to get that sorted. But clearly there's an opportunity there, isn't there, I guess, for, for teaching people, learning how to, to do it. And and I guess for a lot of surveyors, having a variety of work in their practices gives them a, a lot of resilience, you know, if the, the market dips or something happens, you know, it's having that nice balance of, of work. You mentioned going out. So do you go out and inspect the properties then? Because I, I just assumed that you did it all on paper, but... You go out and inspect. Well, I do both. The longer leases, the flat value doesn't matter so much. It doesn't have such an effect. And so if it's got quite a long lease, then I can do a desktop. There are loads at the moment. All the um, right to buys from the 80s and 90s are coming up to levels that need looking at. And I do lots of those on, on desktop remote valuations. As long as I've got a floor plan with measurements, that right move and Google Maps, uh, and that's sufficient. But the shorter the lease or the higher value, you definitely need to go and see it and get the value right. The other reason a desktop's okay a lot of the time is because condition's not relevant. So it doesn't matter what it's like on the inside. It could be a shell or it could be a palatial palace and it really doesn't matter. All right. And that's for a residential valuer, that's quite triggering. <laughs> <laughs> How do you, uh, you know, so you've, uh, you talked about your, your career and, and then sort of setting up by yourself. What motivated you to, to do that? And, and have that confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to run Alison Stone. Is it Alison Stone yes, Surveyors? It is, yes, yes. Uh, and, and on that note, you might want to look at the initials, which um, once I'd already registered the company, uh. I pointed out, and they said, are you sure you want to call yourself Alison Stone Surveyors? I went, people will remember me, won't they? Uh, friend, a friend of mine um, had a, a job title of a senior technical director. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 and and I know in the uh, in the past, um, different departments that I've I've worked in, they you know it's is it technical department, is it same department? Maybe it's your professional services. 
It's like, yeah, Marion Ellis Professional Services. That sounds great. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Marion is a surveyor, is all I want written. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I've, I've been doing it for quite a long time and um, I was fed up with commute. Um, I wanted to be able to work for who I wanted to work for, when I wanted to work for them. We've got dogs. I wanted to be able to go, do you know what? I'll take the dogs for a walk and I'll come back later and work tonight or something. And because I've been doing it so long, I had a lot of contacts. I'd moved from my father's company to another company and a lot of them came with me. Even the ones that I hadn't thought particularly were my clients, they found me through LinkedIn. Um, I've had the same mobile number for decades, so people Mm. people just phone the same one. Even now I get ones that I haven't worked for for eight years, phone me up with a, a job. So I've got quite a good number of connections. Good, good network. Um, you said, um, you know, about who you want to work with. And I think at the start, you sort of alluded to there are clients that you don't want to work with. How do you, <laughs> what, what's the decision factor on that? Is the is it their ethics? Is it just the type of property or client or? Mostly it's their ethics. Yeah, it's how they behave. Not usually lessees because you want to help them. My freeholder clients are ones that listen to me. They're not out to screw every penny they can. Um, they just want to get their investment look realised. But some of them out there, I have spoken to a few over the years who've said, oh, you know, would you like, yeah, we'd like to, to look at working together. And I've, you know, no, thank you, because they either won't listen to you. There's one in particular that uh, they just say, no, I want this figure. Like, it's not realistic. No, I want that figure. And uh, they won't even let you negotiate. They just give you the figure they want. Um, and others that will just use every trick in the book to make it as difficult as possible for the lessees to get the lease extension done. See, I, I think this is really important. And I think surveyors have a lot more impact than they realise. We get to choose who we work with. You know, we get to choose who our who our clients are. And so I'm really pleased to hear that you you do that in terms of of, of ethics because you know, there's this uh, when we think about property, it's people's lives at the end of the day. So yes, this is about a, you know a legal contract transaction that you're the evaluation that you're doing, but it's somebody's home at the end of the day that they need to to live in. And you know, on the one hand, we can go a bit soft and very compassionate. On the other hand, it's the you know hard as nails, not negotiating. But it's just not right. You know, it's putting we've got to put people before profit, and a lot of people don't like that. But we need to, and there are ways that we can that we can do that, you know. And um, I'm a big fan of Mary Portis and the, the kindness economy, you know, just to be able to get things negotiated, get the deal done, helping people along the way. It really doesn't take that much to do it. But where sometimes we're so stuck in a rut over the way that things should be done, and you know, we don't, you know, so for example, you know, people complain about landlords you know, and the quality of the housing. So don't value, don't lend for them. You know, there's a, there's, there's due, the due diligence that we do, but then there's also the, uh, I guess it's a kind of, you know, corporate social responsibility. You know, we, it's how our clients want to see how we're performing, what we're doing, what we're interested in. But then that, that also means, you know, the, the knock-on effect of any business that we associate ourselves with. You know, we don't have to, we don't have to, to work with them. And I hear a lot from surveyors, uh, you know, that if someone will pay them to do a survey or evaluation, they will, you know, provide it's within their PI. And I think, well, no, right. you know, don't just take anything, do the stuff that's right for you that, you know, makes a difference, you know, rather than just 
just take anything you can because sometimes I think we're, we're feeding the problem you know if you think about the quality of housing or the the way that people are treated and we, we just don't have to you know and if we ever we were working with businesses that you know make us run around doing 26 million jobs a day and don't treat us like human beings we don't have to work with them there are plenty of other nice companies nice people out there that make you feel good about the work that you do sorry that was a bit of a rant there but <laughs> so I've had a, I wasn't working for myself then so I didn't have the option of saying I don't want to do this but there was one they were the lessee rather than the freeholder but they were a landlord and this flat I went into had several beds in every single room including the kitchen it was all disgusting the shower room was had broken tiles I've never seen anything like it you know they really shouldn't have been living in those conditions but I didn't have the option of saying do you know what I'm not doing this you can go and find someone else and I wanted that option uh, I want to be able to say to people I, you know I, I don't want to do this work I think you're right you know it, it sort of sticks morally doesn't it at the back of your throat of, yeah you know the situations that you're sometimes putting because you don't want to go into that kind of environment afterwards yeah, you know, sort of, but then you've got to see that and you can't unsee those things. And then you think about those people. I mean, in the past, you know, I've walked out of properties. I remember when I was um, auditing someone, thankfully we were together, but we kept walked out and thought, do we need to call social services in the NSPCC? You know, yeah. and you can't unsee some things. And one of the things I come across with, with surveys is not just, you know, that choosing who to, to work with or for and why, uh, but not calling it out when it needs to be. You know, and I think if we see things with other members or other surveyors out there, whatever membership body you're part of, if you see something that's not ethical, that's not right, you have a duty to flag it up. You know, if you don't, you're, you know, your silence is complicit almost. I, you know, it's that whole whistleblowing piece, I guess, which is I totally get is difficult. But there's, there's humans at the end of the day and we get to choose who we work with, you know, what we see, take action, you know, and can you sleep at night? And I think that's where a lot of people, we worry about being paid, being able to pay the mortgage ourselves, roof over our head, all of those things. And we can become quite jaded, I guess, with the work that we do when it's just a production line of doing rubbish stuff for rubbish people all day. You're know? having a slow week or a slow month. It can be tempting to take on something that really... It's you not the right fit. Mm. Yeah. And I guess that's where really then thinking about and being conscious about your business plan, effectively, you know, what your business is about, what it stands for. You know, we talk about company values, but actually when you work for yourself or a small business, it's personal values. You are your your business often. And we, and we talk about values, you know, like corporate marketing fluff, really. You know, I, I uh, once worked for a firm, they had the their values internally and their values externally. It's like, why do they even be, be a different thing? You know, it's like, can we just be ourselves and, uh, and everything? Um, but but be knowing what you're about and what you're there to do means you can work in a more, with a better conscious, I guess, but also clients want to work with you because of that. Yeah. Yeah, you get people saying, you know, they like, they're not even really often able to verbalise it, but they usually say things like, oh, I like your, I like your website and what you say there. Because they don't actually know what it is they like, but they just feel it's the, it's a, the right It's a feeling, thing. isn't it? Yeah. It's a feeling. And we don't talk about feelings in business, you know, how we feel about working with companies, how we feel about doing this kind of work. Um, but that's all clients are really interested in, is feelings. And if they don't feel enough to have a conversation with you and they just want to 
transaction and just do it this number well that just dehumanizes a lot of what we do doesn't it yeah I tend to have to have conversations because the people don't understand what it is they even need most of the time Mm. and this is where I find it challenging sometimes to get my head around when surveyors go out and do a survey and don't actually speak to the client either before or after you know and you just think that's just me (laughs) you just think I just I just can't get my head around that tell me about you know working for yourself you know what have been some of the challenges what have you what have you learned I mean it sounds like you had a base of clients and some work you know sort of ready you knew how to do do what you do but how, how has the entrepreneurial journey been well my dad's company was quite small so there was um a lot of I learned there what to do and I would do a lot of his it wasn't marketing in traditional sense but networking is how I do the marketing um, so I just carried on with that I like I go and see solicitors I go out for coffee I just put myself out there and you do have to I've got a couple of friends who've started their own businesses doing completely different things one's a hypnotherapist the other one's doing websites and say you have to get out there you've got to this is you I'm preaching to the choir here aren't I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Biting> my tongue <laughs> yeah <laughs> you've got to put yourself out there uh and you know I have had other surveyors say to me oh you know I can see that you that's what you do you put yourself out there you go and talk to people at the conferences I will go up and introduce myself so you've got to have that level of confidence which developed over the years and I just knew that I'd be able to go and meet people and find people and get working by just talking to people the estate agents solicitors um, those sorts of people they they refer a lot of work yeah and it's it's all about building relationships you know and and turning up at these events with the, the goal of well how can I help them you know, even if I don't get business, how can I help them? Because actually, karma, you know, it'll, it'll, yeah. it'll come Oh, yes, no, I do. I give point. away yeah. quite a lot of my time. Um, but it invariably comes back several fold. I helped a, a lady out a while ago. Um, a valuer had valued the lease extension for her, but uh, doesn't do negotiations because he doesn't, it's not his area. Right, so why have you done the valuation? Anyway, it was a very small job and I got it agreed for her. Uh, luckily, the guy on the other side was somebody I knew. We explained what had happened uh, and she kept saying to me, I'll, I'll pay you. And I went, no, it's, this has taken me an hour. I don't want you to pay me. You should never have had to go to somebody else. It should have been dealt with with your original valuer. Um, but I spoke to her solicitor and now her solicitor is referring work to me. Mm. So everyone's happy. She was really happy. I said, just just do me a Google review. Um, that's that's my fallback. When I've given people advice and, and the advice actually is don't do anything, I just say, well, just, just do me a Google review. And, and that's the thing, you know, people don't ask for it. You know, I, I ask for Google reviews or if I've spent a bit of time with someone, I just say, you know, buy me a coffee on the mm. website, buymeacoffee.com. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but it's just a, a token thing. It's not... You know, there's so much that we we do and we don't always ask for that. And it's an exchange of value, isn't it? You know, a, re- a bit of help versus a review. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, let's invoice you and, and everything. It's just about yeah. re- relationships. And and I think we people forget we can do that. We all worry about what's well, got to be in writing. We've got to have a contract in case we get sued. <laughs> you know, you sort of miss the point of we're just human and we're just chatting. You know, we're yeah. just helping each other out. And that's OK sometimes. It's knowing yeah. the boundary, isn't it? Yeah, I know. When I do things like that, I do put in an email, I have not done evaluation, but based on what you have told me, 
and the previous valuation, I cannot see there being any value in doing another one because, yeah, it, you know, that sort of thing and whatever, just a, yeah, a little bit of ass covering. And, uh, and, and, and that's the thing, you know, when you're speaking to people, it's either, you know, there'll either be work or you can, they can go away happy that you've helped them. And I used to think about this when I dealt with complaints and claims, because, you know, they can be dissatisfied with the outcome of a complaint, but they can be satisfied with how you've handled it or what yeah. you did, you know, and they were still, okay, you know, all this went wrong. I'm not happy about that, but you know what? They did really well. And yeah, and you get referrals and you get comments and feedback from from that as well. And that just lets you know you're on the, the right direction. Well, honestly, it's been lovely to talk to you. I've, um, I feel less nervous now about... <laughs> leaseholds, extensions and enfranchisement and all of that business. Uh, but it's good to know that the subject can speak to if I ever have to learn how to spell it. But thanks ever so much. It's been good to talk to you. It's been lovely. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show today. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find the show notes and links to any guests and resources we've mentioned today on the website, lovesurveying.com. And don't forget to show your support by buying me a coffee or you can rate, review and follow the podcast on your usual podcast platform. It really does make a difference and helps spread the word and reach a wider audience of surveyors who just love what they do. See you next time.